And I'm Denise Cooper. And you're listening to Two Average Girls. Happy Tag Tuesday. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. I'm. It's been kind of a cozy, I don't know, fallish kind of day. A cozy SoCal day. We don't get weather here much, but it's been a little drizzly and a little cloudy. And so we, and that always makes me happy. Cloudy days make you happy? A little bit because Southern California is always so sunny. But also we don't get any weather change. Ever. And we've got people listening in very cold places right now who are throwing away their podcasting machines and saying, I don't want to listen to these two. They say it's chilly. Idiots. It's now like 72 outside. <laughs> and it was a little drizzly this morning. Sorry. So. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Yeah. It's but good. Yeah. We are excited about our podcast today. Um, we have a special guest. Mm -hmm. Hi, Craig. Hi there. <laughs> Craig Cawson. Love being here. Oh, we love having you here. Craig Cawson is the chair of the Chuck Jones Center for Creativity. He's the president and CEO of Chuck Jones Company. And he's also Chuck Jones' grandson. Now, there's we probably have a certain demographic who listen to this podcast who are like, who's this Chuck Jones we're talking about? Um I think you can probably say it better for us, Craig. Explain the Chuck Jones legacy, the Chuck Jones company. Can I just say one thing? Sure. A couple things. Wiley Coyote. <laughs> Bugs Bunny. Okay. I don't really That pretty much see. ties it all I together. Know. I think at, at that point, you normally that's what people say when, you know, I when I was even when I was growing up, teenager in my 20s that I people would say, you know, what do you do? Well, I didn't even start with a company until about 30, but um, saying that I was the grandson of Chuck Jones, always follow up the creator of Roadrunner, Coyote, uh, co-creator of Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Elmer Fudd. Um, so all those characters, people know. I mean, he right, started yeah. in the business um, with Warner Brothers and its predecessor in about 1933. Wow. Wow. So when he was about 19 years old. <laughs> And so over 70 years, he created over 300 films and, you know, he animated. He was a director from 1937 when he first started uh, his first film, The Night Watchman. And then his last project was 2001. <gasps> and he passed away in, in 2002. And I think he just sort of, he never stopped. No. And so that is the I got pulled into I always say I got sucked into the family business but you know I, I kind of did in that Bugs Bunny t brought you on that it was so I I'm a computer engineer by training and uh that was my previous uh career and uh I got pulled into the company to automate it and uh in oh. the early 90s and so my brother was running the company with my mother who founded it in 1977 and so I had the opportunity to uh, to come in, I gave them a year to automate the company because it was growing so quickly and yeah. this network of galleries all over the country and, and it was fun. And, and, uh, but then I had the opportunity, uh, to stay and because all of a sudden, instead of just being around Chuck, 
on holidays three or four times a year mm-hmm. you know maybe a little more than that i was seeing him three or four times a week yeah in the office he'd come over and work and and oh. be around and and the opportunities sort of were there and so i just stayed and and that was 30 years ago so wow. it's hard to believe that i'm you know in my 31st year of being part of the chuck jones world and and it's been it's been a great ride i mean it's fun I, I can imagine. I mean, I, the world of cartoons, it seems like it would be, obviously there's a lot of work that goes behind it, but it does seem like at its heart that it would be a lot of fun and a lot of creativity happening at all times. Yeah, you know, I think that, uh, that, that and, and we're not in the in the business of actually creating animated films. Mm-hmm. I mean, Chuck was, Chuck certainly. And uh, my mother was his producer up at Warner Brothers when Chuck Jones Film Productions got brought back in the 90s. So that's sort of that last chapter of his animation career. Oh. And uh, Warner Brothers saw a... Um, Chuck did a piece of animation f- to begin the film of Mrs. Doubtfire. So he was working with Chris Columbus and, and Robin Williams. Yeah. And that was 20th Century Fox. And Chuck was always Warner Brothers and had been Warner Brothers throughout his career, was at MGM. Warner Brothers bought MGM. So all of that, that library came back together. But he was now doing a project for 20th Century Fox and they weren't really pleased about it. So they reached out to Chuck and said, you know, we want you with us. Exclusive. And then, and they said, well, you know, I've always wanted to start another studio that inspires creativity in young animation professionals, kind of recreating what we were able to do in the 30s and the 40s as young people in the industry. And so they uh, they started that in, in actually the same building that Chuck was in starting in 1955 wow. on the Warner Brothers lot. They oh. got that same building. They hired all these young animators to create cartoons. They were given a lot of flexibility to create characters and use the characters again and to to really play and learn. And then uh, four years later, Warner Brothers, as they had done before, they couldn't really figure out what to do with a short subject animated film, which right. is what they were making. Mm-hmm. And so they shut Chuck Jones Film Productions down again. Oh. And so unfortunately, it sort of was <laughs> like, okay, we're going to go. And then it sort of just fell apart. But um, <laughs> that was his and my mother's last uh, animated piece over those last, the end of the 1990s. And that team went on to do a couple other projects in 2000 and 2001. You can't experience the way these digital cartoons are now happening. They're so realistic. There's something lost, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, I, it, it's, it, it's not just that the, they were hand-drawn because I think there are some digital cartoons that are really phenomenal. Absolutely. And it really never, it's never about, and I'm, I'm really paraphrasing Chuck here, and certainly my education is through the eyes of Chuck, and, and I got to know him until... I was nearly 40, and so I got 40 years with him. I traveled with him quite a bit in the 90s to art shows and museum exhibitions and, and lectures that he would give at studios. And and the opportunity to hear him, because people would ask him about things like CGI, you know, yeah. Pixar and the other studios. And, and we went up to Skywalker Ranch once. He was invited up to oh. visit, and, and I got a tour of that with him. It was awesome. Oh and then we gosh. did a we did a he did a speech, but we got a tour of Industrial Light Magic Studios. Oh, and I wow. mean, it was one of those kind of 
incredible opportunities. You know, Chuck, I don't think was really in awe of much. I think sure. the opposite was true that as he was a very humble man, but because of his accomplishments throughout his life, those that met him, that kind of grew up with his uh, films, knew him as a person. We were up at Lucas uh, at Skywalker Ranch and we went over to the sound studios and and we were introduced to Gary Rydstrom, multi-academy award winner. And that's the way he was introduced to Chuck and to me. It was oh. just the four of us and the person who was giving us the tour. And the way that the that the tour guide was like, this is Gary Rydstrom, multi-academy award winner, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And and Chuck is like, well, very nice to meet you. And, and Gary was like, oh my God, <laughs> you're Chuck Jones. And it was sort of this awe moment but that was for Gary. The, for Gary, yeah. that that Gary was like I'm meeting my one of my heroes, and yeah. so. But we would go and and lecture. Uh, he would go and lecture, and I would listen to these sometimes multi-hour lectures with uh, at ILM. It was I think it was a, a, a theater, their in-house theater, which I think held 250 people, mm-hmm. and there must have been 400 plus because they were all in the aisles. It was SRO, sitting room only. <laughs> and literally, they were packed in there and he probably spoke for two and a half hours. Wow. Just people were asking questions and all these things. And, and there was a lot of that question, especially because these people were were digital artists, and but they loved this. And, and his comment to your question of, you know, the difference between what Chuck did and what they did, he said, it's all about character. And it's not the tool. It's it's because whether it's a pencil or a computer or it's not what you're using to do it. It's how you're doing it. It's mm-hmm. what you're creating. And and uh, the character meaning the character you're developing. Yes. For the yeah. story. And and Chuck <clears throat> always started his films knowing the character. There are some creators that that create the story first and then figure out which characters go into it. Chuck was always character-based because he figured that if he understood the character, like a Bugs Bunny who was incredibly you know, self-confident, always the winner, and Daffy Duck, who was always the loser, but thought he could win. And, and there's that, you know, if you throw in a little bit of avarice and, uh, you know, then you've got that duck who, you know, is always going to lose, but thinks he's just the best. And, right. and, you know, the Wiley Coyote, if you understand that character of... You know, that he, all he really wants is to eat. He's a hungry, <laughs> you know, and, and and I think I may have mentioned, you know, when we first met that Wile E. Coyote was inspired by a book that Chuck had, had, had read when he was a child and just staying oh. on the character side. Yeah. And he was a voracious reader. Um, you know, we, he was born in 1912. So by the time he actually taught himself how to read uh, at the age of three. Oh. And really it was because... There was no television. They didn't have a radio. There wasn't all of the things that could distract. And the family were voracious readers. They were they loved great books. And so my great-grandfather would go house to house looking for fully furnished. In those days, fully furnished houses meant that it had libraries and literally. What? And what year was this approximately? So this is probably 1915, 16, 17. Okay, right. 18, 19, sure. you know, so kind of right at the, the beginning of World War One. He in Hollywood, they're moving around. Um, and they had they lived other places, but Hollywood is where the, they ended. But they um, they then they would devour it. 
they would devour all the books, you know, and sometimes there were hundreds and hundreds of volumes and, and whether it was uh, Mark Twain or O. Henry or Baudelaire or Dickens or, and it was the great books and they would all read them all. And then when they were done, uh, Chuck's father, Charles, would look for another house and they would devour more books. So this And they look for thing. homes that had a great library. Yes, yeah. And wow. so, and that's, that's how so they kind of got this incredible uh, education in great literature. And so, but Chuck then later said that he, Twain was his hero, oh. always was, and read, you know, Mark Twain throughout his life, but really loved it as a child. And there was a book called Roughing It that uh, he, Chuck said he first read about age six or seven. And it's the story of Twain going across the, uh, with his brother uh, across the plains uh, to the west. And there's a section in there about 70 pages in where he, is, he has seen this creature, the coyote. And so he goes on for about a page and a half. And, and he starts off with, it's a, it's a long, slim, sick, and sorry-looking skeleton with a gray wolf skin pulled over him. He's got a reasonably bushy tail that hangs down too low. He's the allegory of want. And he goes on and on describing this character. And I always imagine Chuck reading this for the first or the second or the third time as a child and having that imaginative moment of seeing what that might look like. You know, not necessarily seeing that character, but the way that Twain pictured it in those words resonated with him. Now, fast forward, you know, if he was seven then, fast forward 30 years to 1947. And, you know, Chuck and Mike Maltese, his writer, was looking, they were looking for a chase theme because Tom and Jerry were already there. They were chasing each other. The Keystone Cops, there was lots of chasing. There was chases going all over the place. <laughs> mm-hmm. Chasing was the They thing. needed to chase. And so Chuck traveled to the, uh, the the Southwest, predominantly Arizona, to go square dancing. He and my, uh, my grandmother loved to square dance together. Oh, and so uh, my mom went to Orm Ranch School over there in the, in the uh, 50s, I guess it was, or late 40s. Um, and so Arizona was a thing. And the, the roadrunners over there, you know, you'd watch them and they would chase each other. Now, yeah. come to find out later, I found out from a guy who was getting his PhD in Roadrunners because, yes, I know what he was doing, his dissertation on the the, you know, whatever it was and that they're incredibly territorial. And so they 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 dominate as much as an acre, a single Roadrunner, and they chase each other all over the place. So he saw this, the chasing going on over in Arizona. And when they were looking for these characters to create for the chase, the roadrunner, uh, roadrunner, and a roadrunner, not so much. But then he dipped back in his memory of that coyote from Roughing It from Mark Twain when he was seven years old, and all of a sudden he, you know, created this character, this allegory of want. You know, this whole idea. It's it's almost like that Charlie Chaplin where he's going to eat that that shoe. Yes. You know, it's that yes. classic scene. And Chuck created these first drawings in about 1947, 1948. First cartoon released Fast and Furious in 1949. And all of a sudden that memory and that character came to life. And there were certain rules that he had in his own mind that the Roadrunner never does anything to the coyote, mm-hmm. you know, except for beep beep. Right. And every time that he loses, it has to be 
to uh, his, because of his own problems, right. not because the it's not a battle here. Mm-hmm. It is just pure, uh, you know, a, a, he wants to eat the dang thing, <laughs> right? You know, and 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 you know, Chuck used to say. Which it didn't make a lot of sense because if you think about all the meat that was on that carcass, it was only nothing. <laughs> it was it was more of the sport of it. Yeah. And so the idea of him just continuing to chase, and then also that every single contraption had to come from the Acme company. You know, you just have to go back, even though every single one fails, fails every time. It has to do with well, it's the pain you love, and exactly. you know, you may hate your car, as Chuck would say. But you know that pain, and so you go back to the same manufacturer and you do the same. You do it again. So, do you yeah. know the origins of the Ac- Acme company in regards to Chuck and his choice to use that? You know, Acme was was at the time. You know, you you named a company Acme. One Acme means the best, the pinnacle, the yes. top. But it was also back then when there was this thing called the. Um, uh, wait a minute. It's called the phone book. <laughs> <laughs> It's an actual so, book with pages. It, it is. It's Crazy. a weird thing. You let your fingers right. through and, the water. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that if you started a company name with an A, you're at the beginning. Oh, yes, yeah. And so that was sort of the the play on it, that all of a sudden, and Acme was, you know, there were Acme anvils, and, yes. and there actually were Acme anvils in the early 1900s, yeah. mm-hmm. and I've seen some yeah. that uh, have survived, but... And the idea that the best, the acme of all of it always failed, yeah, but pretty much only failed. They were brilliant contraptions. Yeah. I mean, throughout the time, right, the fun right. that they had creating this. But those were the disciplines to create the character. So going back to the idea, if you understand what the character can and can't do, mm-hmm. then they can fit into any type of story. Mm-hmm. And so the story guys like Mike Maltese and and the other writers that they worked with would come up with gags and then Chuck's uh, game was to figure out how the characters would play in there. And so there may be like, well, then Bugs Bunny bashes him over the head with an ant. It was something. And yeah. it's like, well, no, he wouldn't do that. Right. You know, it would, here's the way that that gag might be. Mm-hmm. And so they just, going back to the, to the comment about the fun. Yes. That it, it really was a... It was a job for these guys, especially mm-hmm. back in the 40s and 30s and 40s and 50s. I mean, they were lucky to have a job yeah. in the Depression. Mm-hmm. And 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 one of the, the things that Chuck always uh, lived by and, and one of his most quoted uh, passages is, uh, you always take your work seriously, but never take yourself too seriously. Yes. And that that is something that he lived by. Mm-hmm. And I think that he wanted to... Uh, infuse in all of us that you know that that I think there's too many people out there and certainly through my travels with Chuck and afterwards and whatnot I've met a number of them that take themselves way too seriously and that they feel that they are too important and I look at someone like Chuck who by others acclaim is probably the greatest animation director in history still to this day and and even some uh, there was a Times writer uh, a Time Magazine writer who wrote an article on him, I think in in the 90s, saying that he was the greatest director, not the greatest animation director, but the greatest film director in history. Wow. That his timing, his his storytelling, all of it, and that that there's an argument for that. And so Steven Spielberg said he was the uh, the Orson Welles of animation. And so the idea that this man 
with 300 films, multi-academy awards, all the accolades that you could ever want. And he still couldn't quite grasp that people were so impressed with him because he said, I was just doing my job. He was so humble and, and cared more. Anybody who talked to him mm-hmm. cared more about, he cared more about them than he, and he wanted to talk about them rather than yeah. talk about himself. Yes. It's like, oh no, but what about you? I love it. Well, tell me about you. And he wasn't, he, I just, it was so fun to watch people just melt with him. He was a legend. I can't imagine having the opportunity to meet him, someone of his caliber, but him specifically, who literally kind of drew the soundtrack or lack, well, lack for yeah, lack of a better he, word. He was the director. He created childhood. it. It was. I mean, right. my brothers and I parked in front of the TV. You Absolutely. must hear that a million times, you know, yeah. when you go, how did he get his training as, as an illustrator? Yeah. So, I, well, you know, the... the um, the, the, the short version is that he was miserable in school. Mm-hmm. He hated school. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it turned out that, that he was actually very far advanced because of all of the reading that he sure. did and, and the education. His, his parents were um, well-educated. Um, they weren't, quote-unquote, successful. Um, but I think that may have been part of of Chuck's upbringing that his father was a serial entrepreneur, failed over and over and over again, which, you know, gave him that, you know, impetus to keep trying. Exactly. I I think it was. A big black hole that he put on the ground. But um, he, uh, that, that, that Chuck loved to draw. He loved to read. He got a, um, he, he had the opportunity at 15 as he was miserable, actually, I think go backwards to maybe when he was 11 or 12 years old and he, they, they just started the Stanford nine tests. They still give the Stanford nine That's tests today, right? Worst. I know. Well, at that point it was even worse that the, uh, that what they would do is they test. And he was part of this test subject from Stanford, literally these tests and in this LA school district. And instead of, they would test you, figure out where you are, Instead of putting you in an advanced program in the, you know, fifth grade, mm-hmm. they moved you to the seventh grade. Of course. And so oh. because, of course, you're going to want to be in the grade and, and we can't do special teaching and whatnot. So think of a fifth or sixth grader moving up two grades. And now all of a sudden, this 11-year-old with a bunch of 13-year-old, as he said, 13-year-old girls all <laughs> hovering around like, oh, my gosh, how intimidating is that? Yeah, it's awful. And so, you know, he, and he, he was just miserable with the rote learning. Yeah. And he didn't. Like there was a a, a cartoon, uh, a film called From A to Z with Ralph Phillips in it. And he's sitting there and they're in class. Two plus two is four. (laughs) Four plus four is eight. And that, I think, was what Chuck hated about school. So miserable school, wasn't doing well. His father took him out of regular school and put him into the Schnard Art Institute, which had started in the 1920s as the really the great... um, uh, traditional fine art academy on the West Coast. Oh. There were some great ones on the East Coast, but at the age of 15, he went into Chenard and with people like Millard Sheets and other incredible wow. California artists who obviously much older than he was, but he went through a three-year traditional fine arts program, came out uh, in 1929, and 
with the idea that he was going to be a fine artist. As he said, you know, he was going to live in Paris and, and <laughs> paint the beautiful women on the Champs-Élysées. Oh. And, and as he put it in one of the thing, videos that I saw, he said, you know, die at the ripe old age of 37. Sure. You know, <laughs> like all great artists. And then, yeah, like yeah, great yeah, artists yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. And he said, uh, he said, you know, but then it became really, he was came out, he was just 18 years old. And he came out and he figured that, you know, to die poor you had to get there you know you had to actually live and there was no job for a fine artist yeah. uh in 1929 right at the beginning of the depression yeah. so he muddled around for a while and you know worked on alvera street doing caricatures mm-hmm. um worked in a puppet shot la marionette shop painting marionettes <laughs> and working there wow. um and stumbled into animation with a with a studio that was an offshoot it was Ub Iwerks worked at Disney. He and Disney got into a little tiff yes. at one point. Ub went <laughs> off and started his own studio. Sure. And Chuck actually went in. Uh, his first job was a cell washer. And so back then there was, oh. a, there was he, he joked that he saw an ad for a cell washer. And he thought he was going to work in a prison. Right. So <laughs> <With a hose. laughs> go scrub and, and whatnot. But it turns out that it was it was cheaper for them to pay him next to nothing to wash the ink and paint off the cells and reuse them than it was to throw them away and pay eight cents to have new ones. And so he actually started in the business. Um, The thing at UpVibeWorks that actually probably was most influential for me personally was that he met my grandmother. And so she was actually working for Ub as his executive Secretary, I guess, is the official sure. thing. But basically, she ran the studio, all the administrative yeah. stuff, hiring and firing. She actually fired Chuck twice. Oh. And so, yeah. <laughs> Got hired him, a rocky start. Hired him. Fired him. Nice. I think he came back and fired him again. <laughs> but um, and then he he got he finally got a job over at Leon Schlesinger Studios that was making Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies for Warner Brothers. And so that was when he was 19 years old and started in the animation business. Uh, or I guess he was 20 at the time that he started at, at Leon, but uh, came up through assistant animating and then animating and then became a director, like I said, in 1937. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, directed, like I said, over 300 films over 70 years. It so was quite a career. What is the, I'm not understanding the difference between, it, because Looney Tunes is what we sort of, umbrella all the characters right. under what is so tell explain then what looney tunes is versus you know chuck jones as the artist well okay so the looney tunes was one of the brands mary melodies and looney tunes were the were the brands of the cartoons that were coming out of uh, leon schlesinger studios at the time for one brothers to go into the theaters mm-hmm. and so the mary melodies would go out with the uh, the musicals mm-hmm. and the Looney Tunes would go out with the uh, the regular films. At least that's my understanding. A historian is going, mm-hmm. you aren't getting that sure. right, they're but screaming. I'm going to just go with it yeah, anyway. Yeah. Our so, listeners are probably good with your They're Okay, fine. Yeah. So, but um, basically the Looney Tunes characters uh, were created under that brand. Mm-hmm. And so the Looney Tunes continued... Chuck was a director of one of the units, meaning that at any given time at Warner Brothers, there were three units that were creating films. Mm -hmm. And so 
Frizz Freeling was there as a director before uh, he even started. That Chuck was uh, Chuck even started. Tex Avery was an original director there, and so Chuck actually uh, learned from Tex Avery, and so was in his unit. Learned how to direct from Tex Avery. Uh, Tex left very early in the early 40s to go to MGM and do things like Red Hot and and other and and Chuck always admired Tex. Mm-hmm. Tex was the, his cartoons. If you look back, were much wilder. They were much more zany. Uh-huh. But Tex Avery was the one in A Wild Hair in 1940 who actually had the first cartoon that the name Bugs Bunny was used in. Now that rabbit was used in other films before that. Chuck did a film in January of that year. That was a July release. Chuck did a film called Elmer's Candid Camera, in <laughs> which was great. Instead of Elmer having a gun, he had a camera. And so, you know, it was sort of this battle between a rabbit, that rabbit, and Elmer Fudd, who wanted to take his picture. And so there was this very early Bugs Bunny before it's even named Bugs Bunny. But the way Bugs Bunny got his name was that there was a character designer, um, Bob Givens, who did some original drawings of Bugs. And there was a, uh, a part-time director, Ben Hardaway, whose nickname, he was from Texas. Uh, his nickname was Bugs. Mm-hmm. And so up on the thing, from what I understand, there was two guys. One of them, Bob Givens, did the early ones. And I'm blanking on the other guy's name, too. And basically, he said he's looking for a newer version of that rabbit, yeah. that bunny. And so they put up on the board Bugs's with a an apostrophe right. bunny, bunny, and Bugs's bunny, and then it just sort of stuck. And so Tex That's... in a wild in a wild hair um, <laughs> released <laughs> that, that. Yeah, exactly. And then each of the directors, because uh, Tex left, Bob Clampett left, Frizz was there the whole time from the early 1930s until they shut down the studio in the 60s. But Chuck, later um, uh, Bob McKimson, were directors of their unit. And basically, they were everything. Mm-hmm. They had complete control over the content, uh, other than you know they had to get past the censors, which every studio did. They, they presented things, and the censors would, no, you can't do this, you can't do that, that's too risque, you can't, whatever it was. <laughs> Wow. But we, we look at that now and think 1940 censors. What was that? Yeah. What, what could know? Bugs Bunny have done that would be censored? The, well, I'm the, sure if there they couldn't use language that was even at all. I mean, think of you couldn't put it in even films. You couldn't have in television or films. You couldn't have married couples that's sleeping true. in the same bed. Lucy and they Ricky. Had to, exactly. They had to have separate beds. beds. Yeah. That was just censorship, of yeah, course. Right. And so. Yeah, I mean, which is, you know, okay, fine. Whatever, yeah. But, you know, the censors were a part of everybody's life, and yeah. they would, you know, do it as uh, as whatever they could, but it also made it so that uh, there's a lot of comedians in history who go absolute scatological immediately, right? Uh-huh. Where you're just either you're using, uh, you know, curse words, you're going straight for sexual innuendos. Yeah. In these cartoons, because of the boundaries that they had, they had to just make them funny. And because each of the studio, each of the units were uh, responsible for eight to 10 cartoons a year. Mm. However, people ask, well, so they were just pumping them out every month? Well, no. Each of the cartoons took six to nine months to create one cartoon. What? Think about that. Six minute cartoons, six to nine months from inception to finish. And you go, well, the math doesn't work. Right. 
they were creating them in a in a production line process. Oh. Yeah. And I remember Chuck talking about that. He would just reference that he goes, you know, that that Disney was the 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 Cadillac. We were just the Ford, you know, that and, and I thought always thought it was sort of the price point. Yeah. But it wasn't until after he died that I, I watched a documentary on Ford, on Henry Ford, <laughs> and to find out that production line process was his real claim to fame. Yes. And so he was, Chuck was referencing that they as Warner Brothers were creating a production line process, more like a manufacturing process, where for five weeks, a, a storyline would be had by the by the director and the uh, and the storyboard artist, and then it would go into layout, and then another story would start. But layout would take another five weeks, so that Chuck would do four or five hundred drawings for that cartoon, showing exactly what that character is going to look like at a certain time. He would time out the entire film down to a twenty fourth of a second before it ever was produced. Wow. I mean, he had that in his mind down onto paper exactly what the film was going to look like to a 24th of a second before it ever really started. My goodness. Wow. Think about the precision of that. But I they had that. they got very good at it, True. obviously, mm-hmm. creating so many of them. So each of the directors had their, basically like their little fiefdom. Yes. And so they had a, a writer and they had three or four animators. Mm-hmm. They had some in-betweeners at times. And then they had a, a background artist. You know, Chuck's most famous one is Maurice Noble, who'd be like, what's Opera Doc? And, and other things that he'd met, uh, who actually worked on Fantasia oh. back in the 30s and 40s. And wow. so they collaborated. They actually worked together at Chuck Jones Film Productions again in the 90s. So, mm-hmm. you know, these collaborations and these relationships were, you know, multi-decade. And so these guys got very good at it. And so it became this craft. But Chuck always saw it as an art form. And well, so, and, and mm-hmm. that I saw an interview with him on, uh, on a television show in Canada back in the, it was black and white. So I, it must've <laughs> been the sixties or yeah. something like, but, yeah. um, and the, the host asked him, he said, well, so this is like, this is like a cartoon or it's like animation or it's, it's like, what is it? And Chuck just said, art. <laughs> and, and that's the, I really resonated with me that that was what he thought about what he did he was creating a work of art and every single cartoon that he made every film that he made was a work of art that and like any great piece of art um it personifies the artist and so a piece of him comes out through and all the people that work on it you know the writer and but really it was the director and so people look back and and said that you know like tex avery's work crazy and wild and that was sort of him, even though he wasn't outwardly that way. That was part of who he was. Chuck's characters, like Bugs Bunny, evolved in a much more sophisticated, erudite way. If you look at the films that he did, a very sophisticated cadence, a very literary cadence. And I think that was that's who Chuck was. He had that upbringing. He had that sophistication. So Bugs Bunny and his cartoons with... Uh, shoot him now, shoot him now, you know, <laughs> rabbit season, duck yeah, season, yeah, you know, it's yeah. a lot less than, than the rabbit or the daffy duck jumping around going woohoo yeah. and it, very different. They each kind of took the characters in their own way yeah. in a different direction. So that was a very long answer to your question of oh, yeah. what about Chuck and <laughs> Looney Tunes? Yeah. But for those 30 years that he worked at Warner Brothers, 
in uh, when they until they shut the studio down in 1963, he was creating you know Looney Tunes cartoons, but he always evolved one the characters and he always evolved the storylines yeah. and you know he said it was no fun to do the same thing over no. and over again. Let's do something new each and every time. Do you think what because you come back to it? We asked you about how he became an animator, but it always comes back to the character. Do you think how did he? I can't imagine you said basically he worked until he he wasn't Just alive been, any yeah. long <laughs> any longer. I would almost imagine that the relationship he had with the characters was really strong, and that maybe not being able to put down by by putting himself to rest by literally not working would be to say that these characters no longer are living without him. Is there was there something to that? You know, I think the uh, I I think we all see that the characters continue to live and he knew the characters to to really they were children to him they were his children mm-hmm. because every where the characters come from and he said from inside of me yeah. and so this little bits and pieces he said every single one of us has a little bit of each of these characters mm-hmm. you know the hopeful bugs bunny you know he he said that he he'd dream of being Bugs Bunny and he'd wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and see Daffy Duck. You know, that, <laughs> yeah. you know, that was what you dreamed of being. But, you know, he said everybody's, you know, a little avarice. Everybody has a little bit of, of coyote in you. There's, and, and I think that's why it resonates with us. But for him, there was always this, he looked at it that the characters existed in the plane of, Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this alternate reality where the Looney Tunes actually exist. Right. And he understood that. And he understood how those characters lived in there and how they related to each other and and rules that may not, you know, that these two shall never meet, that type of thing. Sometimes after Roadrunner Coyote were out for a couple of years, he said he just couldn't fathom not finding out what the coyote and Bugs Bunny would would do if they ever met. Right. And so Operation Rabbit came out. <laughs> yes. And in the early 1950s where, you know, he's the super genius. Yes. And he's going to eat the rabbit. <laughs> and so then the battle ensues there. So all of a sudden, the Wiley Coyote, because that's the classic, you know, my name is Wile E. Coyote. Right. Genius. That's right. On and, his business card. And little business card. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And... And Bugs is like, oh, sorry, that, that woman in the house isn't here, closes the door. And he, oh, they just have to do it the hard way. And of course, Bugs ends up winning Always. and the coyote ends up losing. But it's it's that universe of that they were going to continue uh, on into the future. He never had that to begin with. He never under, He never thought about that these cartoons would have a life. They literally, if you think about how they were created for the theaters in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s before television was even out there at all that one they had no idea when they were going to be released because it would take six to nine months and then they would get on the shelf and then they would go out they could go out three months later they could go out a year and a half later and so they would go out with whatever the studio decided they were going to go out with explain that because People today, kids specifically, don't understand that you'd go see a movie, but prior to the movie showing, you'd see a cartoon. You'd well, see a cartoon. and really, it was it was more than that. You would go to the theater 
and see a show. And so, you know, if you think about really when films became extremely popular, it was in the 30s. It was in the 40s. And in the 30s, you know, we were in the middle of the Great Depression. And it was different than even the Great Recession recently, where back then you had 30% of the people with no job. It was, it was devastating beyond belief. And so, you know, to be able to go and pay a nickel to go to the theater and one, you would get to see a newsreel because these films, these these documentary, mini documentaries about what was going on in the country and the world right. would show there was no, el there wasn't, there wasn't television. There was mm -hmm. no place to see what was going on. And so you get, you know, well, here's what's happening in government. Here's what's happening in the rest of the country. Here's all of these things and were then shown. And then for the most part, that was pretty depressing. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, so, but then you transition. So you go in, you see, you get the, your news outside of the radio. It's the visual medium. Then you transition through a, a six minute cartoon. And it was the shortest that the theaters would accept. Six minutes. Six, six was minutes the was the shortest that they would accept. Okay. And Leon Schlesinger, who owned the studio before they, they went to Warner Brothers, was too cheap to pay for more than six minutes. So literally, there was the discipline of creating a six-minute cartoon. That was the discipline that they lived by. Mm -hmm. That and seems so, hard. Yeah, I, yeah that, that you've got to tell the whole story right. exactly six minutes right. and know it before you ever start production. There was no editing. No. There was no editing in there. Disney edited the big productions. They would edit beyond belief. But again, they're on schedule, and they're not getting paid very much, so they just need to keep mm -hmm. things rolling. But you get this cartoon where we have all seen it on television, if you're lucky, you've seen it in a theater, these huge characters that make you laugh and it takes you into this other world where the Looney Tunes live and you get to leave the Great uh, Depression for a minute. Later, you get to you know leave the, the World War II going on, which is also, you know, you go and find out what's going on in the war. And then the, and the, and then the, the actual film happens and you enjoy the film a heck of a lot more because you've had that cartoon. Yeah. And that's the magic that I think the 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 both the theater owners and the filmmakers forgot at some point. They forgot to tell the next guy, by the way, here's how you get people to love your films. You take them out of their lives, you show them a cartoon, make them laugh, make them care about these characters. And then they're already settled in, ready for a film. Mm -hmm. And that is the magic that I think has gone, has been lost. Yeah. And you talk about the kids these days. You go to a theater, what do you see? Previews. Advertisement, <laughs> advertisement, 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 previews. The previews are kind of fun. I, I get that. But all of a sudden, think about if you had that cartoon. Yeah. And that all of a sudden, we all laugh together a little more. We all have a moment just sort of forget what's going on outside. Wouldn't that be nice? And then just dive in and go, I'm going to enjoy this movie no matter what it is. For so, a while, Pixar brought that back with the little jumping lamp and the ball. And yeah. it, was, it was very short. It wasn't six minutes, but it did. I do remember uh, my kid and his friends going, what was this? I, I mean, know, but they why? loved it. Yeah. They loved it, but they're like, what is what is this? I know. You know, it was, it was well, kind of the a... the guys at Pixar, including John Lasseter, um, actually, you know, who was the founder of Pixar and, and chief creative officer until this last, whatever, five years, um, w was mentored by Chuck. 
oh, and learn right? from Chuck. Yeah. John Lasseter and I come to find out that all of these guys from the 70s and into the 80s somehow connected with Chuck and Chuck mentored them all. Oh. All these incredible uh, you know, creative filmmakers. Um, and it, when they, there were a bunch of them that went to CalArts. It was the first classic animation class at CalArts. It was Chouinard before, and then it evolved to CalArts, still one of the great arts uh, programs and animation programs. And so John Lasseter and Daryl Van Zitters and a few other guys had reached out. One of them had reached out to Chuck to see if he could come lecture at the at CalArts mm -hmm. for the first year in 1974, I believe it was. And he said, you know what, I'm in production here doing films. Why don't you guys come over to the studio? And so they'd come over to the studio and sit with him and he would spend time and talk to them about how to make an animated film. And and I saw John Lasseter at Pixar. We did an exhibition in 2010 and, and with Chuck's work in Pixar studio. And in their theater, we showed a, a bunch of cartoons, but John Lasseter got up and said, you know, it was those moments sitting with Chuck that I learned how to create cartoons, how I create animated films, story, character, all of that. And so all of those people sort of got inspired by Chuck. And he was so giving of his time. Mm -hmm. When somebody asked, he'd say yes. Nice. That was just who he was, that there was no, you know, oh, talk to my agent, you know, anything about it. And so he wanted to keep the art form of animation on a rise because mm -hmm. it sort of in the 60s it died unfortunately it really took a nosedive as far as most certainly the regular television animation got very cheap yeah and and really it suffered not very intelligent right and even the the theatrical disney stopped making animated films mm -hmm. and so you know that that sort of the black period of sort of the late 60s into the 70s was a time for animation that was very difficult. Yeah. There wasn't really a stage for it because the theaters stopped demanding that cartoon right. because, and then it went to television, but the budgets for television were so low mm -hmm. that you couldn't do really quality animation. Yeah. And so there was very limited animation, which, you know, Chuck would answer the question and oftentimes people ask, well, what about all the violence in the cartoons <laughs> yeah. what about you know the the coyote falling off the cliff and isn't that a bad thing to tell children that you know you fall off the cliff and and that these children all jump off the cliffs and well i i, I chuck would say well first of all i give children a lot more credit to understand that cartoons are not live action yeah he said if you want to in my opinion if you want to if you want to talk about what hurts children is go to limited animation and you can't really determine by the way they move or the way they act, whether they're good or bad. Mm -hmm. They're determined by being good or bad by how they look. That a, that a bad person is ugly and dark and that a good person is good looking and, and that talk about how to infuse something that is really not good into a child. Do that. Exactly. Instead of, you know, the the cartoons were never made for children, no. which is also part of it. They yeah. were made for the theater, for adults, for, for adults. family, for whatever. But at the same time, children love them because 
they are intelligent because they're not talking down to a child. And I think that is probably the most uh, brilliant thing that Chuck, one of the things that, that I loved about him, you never talk down to a child. Mm-hmm. They're smarter than we'll ever be. Right. We teach them how to not be smart. Right. And instead, teach. look at them. If they don't understand the words, that's okay. Right. Then they'll figure it out and they'll learn the next time they see it with something else. And people always talk about the layers of the cartoon that, you know, when I was seven, I loved this part. But then when I got to be 15, I was like, whoa, that is really funny. (laughs) And then you get to be like, you know, 30s and 40s and you're like, whoa, these are deep. These are seriously, there's things going on here. Yeah. That's when you know you've created something that is timeless. Yeah. Absolutely. And so um, that's a long answer to a very short question. <laughs> Loved it. Um, <laughs> did Did Chuck ever meet Walt Disney in his lifetime? Actually, he worked with uh, with Walt um, during one of the strikes, and and he knew Walt. They were all coming up through the. I mean, Walt was the old man at the point. Yeah. You know, Chuck was in his early 20s and Walt was the old man at 30. <laughs> at 30, yeah, right. exactly. So, you know, he, and and as I said, you know, he was doing very different things. You know, when he started with Snow White, he was doing a few short subject things. But when he started with Snow White and really put it on the line, and it was this huge success in 1937, that all of a sudden there's this uh, attention to animation that that and and he was doing these huge productions that would take years to create whereas the looney tunes and the merry melodies and those they were doing stuff they were pumping things out to go out with the warner brothers theatrical stuff all the time but they all crossed in the in the realm of things and and chuck and and walt knew each other quite well um and during the strike in 1956 chuck actually went over to Disney and worked on Sleeping Beauty for a while. Oh. Now, he was only there for three or four months. And you know, it, the way he said the way that Walt worked is that everybody worked on what Walt wanted to work on. You know, it was his he he was in control of what everybody did. He was in control of, you know, what the final products were. He didn't do any of the work necessarily. He didn't do any of the animation or the direction and whatnot. But you had to wait for Walt to to sort of bring focus over to your area. And Chuck was already, what, nearly 20 years a director in creating. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, having to sit and wait and, and do all these things. And everybody knew that eventually the strike would end and that Chuck would probably go back. And so Walt by the story of Chuck and I've heard from others that he called Chuck in and said, you know, I, we know that the strike is going to end and you're probably going to go back to Warner's, but you know, we would love to have you stay here because, you know, and there were some great, the nine old men at Disney were obviously incredible (laughs) talents uh, on their own doing, you know, character animation. And they were really directors of their own parts of the film and he asked Chuck, is there anything here is there that you would like to do? And he said, actually, there is. <gasps> and Walt said, well, what is it? Yeah. He goes, it's your job. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and Walt said, well, that, that's full. Sorry. So uh, so uh, Chuck went back. But they, they stayed friends. And uh, Chuck wrote letters back and forth. Uh, they wrote, Chuck was a... A, a, an avid letter writer, handwritten mm-hmm. letter writer or typed um, letter writer. And so, 
and they would go back and forth. And and in the Disney archives, we went up there for a tour with a a group from the gallery maybe 10, 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. And they had the letter that Chuck sent to Walt. And they had a copy of the letter that Walt sent back to Chuck. And actually, I hadn't seen it until we put this exhibition that's going on here in in Irvine Uh at the Great Park. There's a letter responding to Chuck for... um, He had written a letter about... um, one of the 60s, I think it was. Um, but it was uh, in response, and it's signed by Walt back to Chuck saying thank you. It's really, it's turning out nicely. And yeah. it was, um, oh, which which one? Who was the, the singer that was remade? Um, Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> but it was, so that must have been the early 60s that Chuck wrote that letter. But, I had never seen that letter before no. and that there's this this bond and Chuck actually saw uh, Walt in the hospital before he uh, he passed away really? and because uh, Chuck had they'd become close friends Chuck went to the opening of Disneyland wow. the day before it opened in like and so yeah it was 60 60 it was something in the 60s sometime but he took my mother I think oh, maybe well, it was okay. the 50s but whatever it was they got the the sort of the industry preview thing that's... and and so yeah they they were friends and uh, and actually his daughter Diane um, and my mom became friends and we went up to the, the Disney Family Museum with a group of collectors about seven or eight years ago. And my mom had reached out to Diane and they were they were similar age. Sure. And uh, so we had 20 or 25 people. We're going to take a tour and they, you know, let us in and whatnot. And all of a sudden in the foyer before you got into the elevators going down. Yeah. You know, here comes Diane Disney. <laughs> Nobody knows. She's a tiny little thing because they were a fairly short family yeah. and uh, very sweet. And um, so there's people outside of our group waiting to go in those elevators. And they just taken us on the tour where they showed uh, the, the pictures, the portraits of the girls when they were young out in the entryway. Mm-hmm. And I stopped everybody and I said, well, I just want to let everybody know that we have a special guest with us today. And everybody, this is Diane Disney. And this... <laughs> this gasp went through the room and she was the sweetest, most down to earth woman who just cared about, you know, sharing the legacy, sharing what, it, you know, doing shows for artists, all of that kind of thing. And and so she went along with us for a couple of hours and told stories and whatnot. Oh, so the families were were they, they knew each other yeah. throughout the years and the community you know, between the studios was pretty small. Yeah, at the time, I'm yeah, sure it was. Yeah, I mentioned earlier, one of the hats you wear is you're the chair of the Chuck Jones Center for Creativity. What exactly does that do? Well, the the official tagline is that we're a gymnasium for the creative brain. And so hmm, if you think about fun. that for a minute, the idea um, when when it was founded in 1999, when Chuck was, was alive, and it really, it certainly wasn't, people ask, well, was this his vision to have a... Uh, a, a charity that would inspire and it was more of his blessing that when both my mother and I would travel with him throughout the years uh, and stories from others like John Lasseter and and just people in the in regular walks of life who had met him or uh, who, who were inspired by his films or in all walks of life were uh, somehow 
spoken to by some part of his persona or his work um, that that how do we propagate this? And so I was sitting with my mother and and we talked about what how do you do this? And there was a guy with us who said, well, if you're going to do it, do it right. Just start a nonprofit and make a mission. And this uh, the word creativity kept I put to, we put together about 20 people for a weekend to really distill down what is it about Chuck and and it really the creativity kept coming back that there's it's not about art it's not about animation it's not about it's seeing life differently it's 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 seeing things anew that was the way Chuck lived he always looked for that one the comedic side mm-hmm. he always saw things funny he always twisted things into a joke of some sort in a very sophisticated way but it was this how do you how do you do things better and one of the things that he said was that he didn't want a legacy you know he wrote that very carefully and he said i don't want a legacy because i don't i don't want anybody to follow in our footsteps if you want to honor what we did figure out what you're passionate about what you want to do and and do that to the best of your ability because that's what we did and if you do that you will honor us and mm-hmm. so the center for creativity uh, another thing that chuck said and i think he learned it from his mother my great grandmother is that if you if you provide quality materials in in the arts realm and and then step back in essence, mm-hmm. you know, and don't over criticize and don't uh, over praise. That was something that was is critical to the philosophies of the center and to Chuck, you know, that that oftentimes parents either criticize like, oh, you know, why is the sun black? Yeah. You know, it's it's yellow. Right. And why is the blue? Why is the sky green? You know, this is wrong as opposed to what? my great grandmother would do is sit and and talk and ask like well that's really interesting that you've used a lot of green in that drawing tell me about that yeah and that there's there's a way to express and so the center for creativity hopefully creates environments mm-hmm. creates the opportunity for to pe- for people to exercise that creative muscle that we're all born with because we all have a creative genius that's very unique inside of us. Mm-hmm. And and that, unfortunately, we don't have the opportunity through traditional education to exercise that. Right. We don't. It, it Even if you get into music, unfortunately, when you're, when, you know, even if you get into music when you're uh, in school, yeah. oftentimes it's, Here's the way you do it. Here's the way it's done right. <laughs> yeah. It there's not that joy part of it where you're doing it to express yourself. And so hopefully in in any arts or any endeavor that that uh particularly young people um are given the opportunity to play and to fail and to try new things without being condemned. At, on the other side, Chuck always said, you know, if if all of a sudden, you know, Johnny or Jane draw something and bring it home and say, what do you think of this? And oh, it's the best thing ever. <laughs> yeah. It's going to go here. It's going to go on there. You're the best. And the child goes, you're lying to me. Yeah. Nobody wants to be lied. Yes. They're smarter. Of course. And the fact is that 
that you know it's like gosh i love it because you made it mm. and i want it to i'm going to put it up here because i love it not because it's good or bad oh. and so the idea of one of the one of the most popular quotes on the internet that chuck said is the only thing you can give a child is time mm-hmm. and i know what he meant by it it has to do with being present mm-hmm. with a child a child knows when you're not there in your mind you can physically be there but if you're thinking about work or you're thinking about what you should be doing or you're thinking about what the score of the game is or you're on your a phone. child knows everything mm-hmm. they what there is something so beautiful and I, I i witnessed it with chuck that he lived in the present moment that is how he lived when he'd go to an art show in that moment the two minutes that he would be with somebody who stood in line was absolutely a connection between the two of them for that moment Mm -hmm. and whatever the repartee was whatever the conversation was was them at that moment Mm -hmm. and that chuck did i think innately it wasn't something that he it was just who he was and i've heard it from interactions throughout his life and i think if anything that would be something that one i've learned to attempt to remember and that if i were to stand up in front of ten thousand people and say you know what's the key is to live in this moment of whatever you're doing and do it the best you can people will say well what if i don't like what i'm doing well you don't always get to do all the things you like to do but for me if i'm going to scrub a toilet Darn it, I am going to do it to the best of my ability mm-hmm. and I am going to focus and I am going to not trying to, well, just get through it because this is awful. Yeah. Because life has ups and downs. It's got bumps. And, you know, it, it, life is not determined by the bumps we live with. It's how we deal with the bumps mm-hmm. that Absolutely. really determine our life. And so, you know, Chuck wasn't always successful. Right. He failed over and over and over again. Daffy Duck. But <laughs> I right? mean, I, on that side, I will tell you that that the the quick story of of how the Grinch stole Christmas. You know, he yeah. he met Dr. Seuss in the war. They made snafu uh, cartoons together, training films for the army, and <laughs> he, that's how they met. Literally. Literally, that oh, that Ted was a captain in the army, and Chuck was. The one of the main units at, at Warner Brothers to make these private snafu cartoons, the training films for the army. So they met, became friends, uh, worked together for during the war, stayed in touch throughout the time. And when Chuck left Warner Brothers in 63, he was looking for projects. Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas book came out in 1957, and Chuck was looking for projects at MGM. And so he went and talked to Ted down in La Jolla, Ted Geisel, and he presented the idea, you know, I want to do this project with MGM and it's going to be, you know, good. Ted had had a really bad experience with television, uh, with, with film back in the 50s mm. and told Chuck no. And, and so Chuck went back, did some storyboards and, and ideas and really he wouldn't let it go. And he went down on the third time presenting to Ted, Ted said, okay, because it's you, Chuck, I know it'll be done right. <laughs> Because Chuck, you know, knew that he wasn't going to do 
Saturday morning television sort of animation. He wanted to do it quality. Mm -hmm. And so he went to Roger Mayer at MGM and uh, who was uh, the producer and, and working on the project. And at that point, you didn't just pitch a project and say, okay, go ahead and do it. You had to find a sponsor for it back then for television. And so the the average half an hour television piece of animation budget was between twenty dollars and $25,000 at that point, which mm-hmm. was a lot of money back then. Back then. But Chuck came up with a budget that was $366,000. <laughs> and, and Roger Mayer goes, this is never going to happen, Chuck. And uh, he's, you know... Chuck or uh, uh, Roger went to the the normal people, the the serial companies, and they're like, "You want to spend what on what? <laughs> yeah. No." Yeah. And so Chuck said, "Don't worry about it. I'll find the money." And so he came up that he had done uh, four or five hundred storyboards, color, you know, on MGM storyboard paper, and went about making this presentation to find the money. And he got told no 25 times. Wow. Think about that, that, that you could get discouraged after five times. You could get once. discouraged after once. For real, yeah. And he had this vision of what it could be and went around the country, went to New York, went to all over, made the pitch, told the story, showed the images, and finally went to Chicago and made a presentation to the uh, community Association or the Association of Community Banks. And they said, oh, we get it. Oh. Okay, we'll, we'll sponsor you. Which he always thought was kind of ironic given yeah, that right. the whole story was, it comes without <laughs> bags, it comes without presents, it comes without banks, dang it. And yet they sponsored it. And it is now the most watched animated television special in history. And it continues to get more and more popular. And, and I mean, this is 55 years. Yeah. It was released on December 18th of 1966. So this is 55 years later. And it is still as strong today yeah. because of the quality of it. Yeah. And it was Chuck's choice for the music with Albert Haig. <gasps> and it, all of it was Chuck's vision. And a lot of the people that came back Ken Harris, Ben Washam, Maurice Noble came back as the he was doing the backgrounds and the and the art design for it. Maurice was the one who who decided that the Grinch should be that green. Really? Oh. And so in the book, it's just black and white. It's black and white, yeah. And so the idea of the colors and and it was Chuck did say I want it green because of a car that he had was green and he thought it would be <laughs> this he loved the green, but Maurice was the one who understood color scheme and the way that it was and how much yellow had to be in there so it translated just right and so this idea of failure and perseverance and chuck didn't get his way all the time there were many projects that he wanted to produce that he never got the opportunity to but he said you know you just do your best Mm -hmm. and and you know when he won his academy awards or he won these big accolades he said that's great i will accept it thank you very much but you put it back on the shelf and you turn and you say, well, what's next? What project is next yeah. to make the world a little bit better? That's in- so, so interesting. He was your grandfather. That was my grandfather. That's a good grandfather. That's a good grandfather. <laughs> Did you know growing up that he 
was who he was or did he just seem like your grandfather? He was just my grandfather. I mean, I, we certainly knew that he made cartoons, but remember, this is the 1960s and 70s mm-hmm. and he wasn't famous at all. There was no there was no place to go, you know, see him or talk, you know, about him even. There was another Chuck Jones in Southern California who was a magician. <laughs> Chuck Jones, the magic man, was the famous Chuck Jones. Sure. And, and people would, you know, kind of see something and it's like, well, 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 who's your grandfather? Chuck Jones? The magic man? No. <laughs> the Aww. guy who draws cartoons. He's just a guy that wrote Roadrunner Coyote, you know, cartoons. He's like, oh, okay, well, that's not very exciting. <laughs> oh, my God. So, but as it crested into sort of my late teens and then into my 20s and, and really the the people started to notice that there was something unique about his cartoons, his persona, his inspiration, I guess, that was special, that was different. And he was part of a group. He had a team, all these, but the way that he wrote, the way that he uh, communicated his films, there was something different. And you talk to Eric Goldberg, who's probably the finest two-dimensional hand-drawn animation uh, animator today. He still works at Disney. Um, uh, John Lasseter, uh, Daryl Van Zitters, all these guys say there was something different Mm -hmm. about his work. And so many of them got into animation because of Chuck and touring around making speeches. There's a producer at uh, Multi Academy Award winning producer at Disney um, who just celebrated his... Uh, it was a homecoming at Loyola High School. Mm-hmm. And he said that he got into animation uh, because of Chuck came in 1970 and spoke at Loyola High School about animation. And he goes, I came away from that that lecture thinking, I want to go into animation. Yeah. And then he went to the studios and like, I want to be in animation. And they went, you're not ready. Uh-huh. And so you need to go to school. And he was part of that that class at Cal Arts. And so this going back to what you asked about as far as the Center for Creativity, we work mostly with children, but we do things with uh you know people on the autism spectrum, we do mm-hmm. things with uh seniors who want to keep their brain health. We have done things with Hogue Hospital and the neurology department there, mild cognitive impairment groups. Um and these are just we're sort of stumble through our life figuring out uh, of the organization, figuring out where the opportunities are. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've definitely learned from my grandfather was that yes is a very important word. And that, mm-hmm. you know, almost inevitably, and, and my staff, you know, and, and I mean the team, you know, they cringe when anybody asks, because <laughs> and inevitably my answer is, well, yes, of course. <laughs> That's why you're here today. Of course we can. <laughs> I, of course. Yeah. And that, that uh, you know, Chuck said, and he had a drawing that, uh, that, that he did, but he said the biggest killer of creativity is the word no. Mm-hmm. And so the idea, and he's got this, this, this golden little delicate yes that's written in script, this visual, and this huge boulder-like no that has a, <laughs> a rope, you know, tied to it, and these scissors oh. just getting there, you know, if you say no, you kill this idea. Yep. And so the, the whole premise of, of, you know, my, and I, I have, I have 
been able to lecture and share throughout the years over the last you know 20 years um, about creativity and and whether it be in schools or communities groups or whatever and one of the things that occurred to me a number of years ago is the letters t-y-e-t and i put that in that the letters t-y-e-t are four of the most important letters in and I usually give a little pause, like I'm giving you a pause. Like, well, tell me about what see, that I'm means. Thinking What's T-Y. the acronym? What's and what it is? If you add T Y E T to the word no, it spells not yet. Oh. And so every question that comes about, you know, have we learned? Do we know how to solve, you know, cancer? Do we know how to, you know, so, whatever the problems are, you know, the answer no is so definitive. And so the way I look at it, when, when somebody on my team or anybody comes in, you know, can this, can this happen? Not yet. Right. Because that leaves an opportunity open. An opportunity seems to me to be the best thing in the world. Mm-hmm. That as soon as you close off all possibilities, you're done. Yeah. And that, to me, is depressing. Yeah. Well, and it stifles the creativity. Yeah. Completely. So... You know, if you can get past the no, and and Chuck used to say that they had meetings where they would talk about the story, and the only rule was you couldn't say no to anything. I love it. I mean, his people must have gone crazy. Yeah. But and, I think that's such a and great you know, concept. You can't say no. You can say, well, yes, and. Yeah. Yes, and. And, mm-hmm. and what about, and because you never know that first one that you kind of go, Mm, I don't see this character <laughs> yeah. severing the head of the- that character. <laughs> Great, which I, I don't know if ever happened. But <laughs> but yeah, and what if, and what if, and mm-hmm. what if, and what if that there's infinite possibilities that happen? What is the exhibition down at the Great Park? So the actual, the, 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 the beginnings of it started at the Academy of Motion Pictures in 2010. And then the Academy got together with the Smithsonian Institute uh, in 2011. And we took that group of, of artwork, evolved it for the Smithsonian tour. And there was a Smithsonian tour called uh, um, What's Up, Doc? Mm-hmm. The Animation Art of Chuck Jones. Nice. The toured around with the Smithsonian uh, traveling exhibitions all over the country from 14 or 13 to 17. And went all over the country to wonderful museums. And then uh, some of the pieces went back to their homes, uh, but most of it is in the Chuck Jones Museum collection that that we utilize for exhibitions. And um, and then we got to evolve that even a little more for the Great Park. Three years ago, one of our board members, Fernando del Rosario, met one of the arts leaders at the Great Park because they have the arts plaza there. And they started to have a, what if we did a Chuck Jones exhibition? And so through COVID, we had no idea whether it was going to come to fruition. We kept planning for it. We got to evolve to about 140 works of art, wow. which is the bigger than than even the Smithsonian had, Oof. which was kind of exciting. That's cool. Like I found that Walt Disney letter. Yes. I mean, yeah. because it had never seen the light of day, at least I had never right. seen it before. And it tells the story of how a Chuck Jones cartoon is made. Mm-hmm. And there's artifacts there that date back to the 1930s. All the way through, there's things with character design. There's things with storyboard. There's things with, with dialogue sheets. There's 
layout drawings, there's backgrounds, there's key master setups, there's animation drawings. Uh, um, so it, it, it basically tells the whole story of how a Chuck Jones cartoon was made. Nice. And you get to see pieces that were actually used in the film. Oh. There's, there's some interviews with Chuck playing, you know, on his oh. desk. There is his original desk that was in his studio at his house. And that he did thousands of drawings on there in the corner, um, part a little tiny part of his his library, some of the books oh, there on his desk. Mark Twain. And so there is some Twain oh, on yeah. there. And so um, it is there's something so special about in fact there's a there's a sketch of Mark Twain by Chuck over the <gasps> desk. Really? Yep. Oh, and I, uh, that's so exciting. Oh, it's that's... and and I got to make the exhibition this time there is a draw right next to mark twain there's a picture of this child that was done in 1966 that's me (gasps) that i got i finally made the exhibition so i'm right next to twain in a charcoal drawing yeah i know right above his desk so grandpa sketched you yeah chuck chuck uh Chuck sketched me in in the '60s, and it finally made the exhibition. So. Oh, lovely! <laughs> that is so. Amazing. But it is worth, and it goes through the end of the year. It was scheduled to close on September 12th, and by, as they said, popular demand, literally, yeah. that it is going to be there through the end of the year. Through the end of uh, through 2021. Through 2021, yeah. mm-hmm. and so um, yeah, we've got uh, um, and come uh, later in the year there will be a. A facade created in one of the artist studios of Whoville. So we're just going to kind of a, a makeshift background reminiscent. Exciting. So there'll be for, for Whoville in there and for the uh, Grinch and whatnot. So, so we'll, we'll retrofit it a little bit with some Grinch artifacts during that Exciting. time. Exciting. So if you're in the area, go to the Great Park in Irvine and they can get that information from us. We will link it to everything that we're yep. doing here. Yep. So you have given us so much to think about. I mean, there's just, the, the history is rich. This nostalgia is everything. For us, we were just like, oh, this is just so amazing, right? I want to watch a cartoon right now. <laughs> I need to do that. Um, you're amazing to, to take your time. But we always ask, and you've already given us a few that I think we could use mm-hmm. as a takeaway mm-hmm. gift because I've written them down. Okay. But do you have a particular tag for us, a takeaway gift for our listeners that you think would be just something that they could remember you by or live by, maybe by Chuck? Or what What do you think? Yeah, I know I've shared some of the things that Chuck has said. And, and you know, I think through the last uh, 20 years, particularly through the last probably 14, 15 years of, of working with the Center for Creativity and all these different groups and um, the stories that I've heard I think probably if I could take somebody by the shoulders and look at them in their eye and say, you have a unique creative genius inside of you that's different than anybody else. And when you find that, bring it out and live through that creative genius. Don't try to be somebody else. Be who you are today. Because that will be the most impactful thing to this world that you can bring. And that changes every day. Mm -hmm. But whoever that creative genius is today, embrace it 
Be passionate about it and don't be afraid to share it. Love it. Craig, thank you so much for joining us. We could sit here for hours. I'm really, I, I'm still, I'm still wanting more. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can come back whenever we'll you want. We would to, love. So. We're going to order more art and have you deliver there. it. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're stuck. You have to sit in the pod lock. You have it. a lot of empty walls. <laughs> I really do. You just I told you about this. Wiley Coyote almost stayed here and Hod wouldn't let me. So I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do in here. <laughs> well, thanks, Craig, for coming on. I'm Ann Police. And I'm Denise Cooper. We are Two Average Girls. Thanks so much for joining us. You can find us at all of the usual places from Spotify to Apple to Google and Amazon. We're everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. Be sure and um, rate, review, subscribe and follow and uh, look for us on Instagram and Facebook, Two Average Girls Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 